If you're visiting for the first time, we're really glad you're here. We're a little bit laid back, not real formal, but we're very respectful, and we're glad you're here. I don't care what country, nationality, or gender you are, we're happy you're here, and I hope it genders life. Now, let me set this up. Last week, we started a brand new series. I just called it because I had never prepared it, and I had to. I was ready to do something about not letting your past rob your future. And I'm all set to go, and then the team and staff tell me they're getting an unusual number of people who want prayer for financial difficulties and financial problems. Well, first, I'm a friend, and second, I'm a pastor. I'm going to pray. I don't care if you were ignorant, I'm going to pray. I don't care if you did a bad thing and caused the problem, certainly I will pray. But it's a little bit more complicated than that when you want to get help. And so we thought about how can we help you uh, stop praying for the spider web and kill the spider? You know, some of you just live from one difficulty to the next because you don't get the root of it. So, let me ask you if, you if this makes sense to you. If you've got a marriage that sucks, you're not going to get that marriage fixed by just praying about it. You're going to go to a seminar, you're going to get counseling, you're going to go to somebody who's going to take God's Word and give you some principles on how to do marriage. How many of you know some people don't know how to do marriage very well? You know, if somebody sitting next to you has been married nine times, move away. They don't get marriage advice from them. Love them, but you don't want any counseling. So my point, my point being, what was my point? My point being was, you've got to learn some things for things to improve. Prayer and obey. It's quite simple. So if I were to help you in your marriage, it's simple. We're going to pray about a bad marriage, but we're going to also instruct you to start doing some things differently. Stop doing some things. When it comes to finances, the Bible's loaded with advice. So we want to help you. Stop doing this. Start doing this. Here's what God says He ought to know about how to do your money. So you quit living in constant bondage. So we want to pray. We want to encourage you. But I'd also like to help you. So last week, we just interrupted everything, and I spoke about the tithe challenge. I did it as though you've never been to church, you've never heard the Word, you don't have a clue what it is, a 101 basic, simple teaching. And the impact was phenomenal. If you didn't get that CD, go get it in the bookshop. If you don't have any money, I'll give it to you. That one only, free. If you got money, you pay for it. But if you're broker than the Ten Commandments and you don't even have a dollar, Rick said I could have that CD. Is that all right? Okay. I mean, I want to help you. I want you to do well for crying out loud. What did the Apostle John say? I pray, my beloved, that you might prosper and be in health for crying out loud. We're no testimony to Jesus if we're on Dr. Phil 24 hours a day, sucking a pacifier, broke, crying, bad marriage, bad life, bad haircut. Come on. You're no sponsor for the great testimony of Jesus living like that. So God wants you to do well. So. I call this series, In God We Trust, which is on the back of your dollar bill or money. And then I put, really, to kind of find out if that's true. So look at part two with me. 
everybody somewhere deep inside is wishing or thinking, if I just made a little more, if I was just worth a little more, or maybe you're feeling today a bit financially stressed or struggling. There's a lot of pressure in our world today, and maybe you feel like you could use a little more or you need a little more. So I want to help us understand what Paul writes to Timothy on how to be rich. And I go to 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy is written by Paul to a young leader. He's mentoring and training to be a leader in the church. And Paul gives Timothy a variety of instructions on a lot of stuff and some real specific instructions for rich people. Because evidently in Paul's day and in the church, there were rich people who weren't very good at being rich. Some had attitudes of superiority. They looked down on others with less. Others overindulged, ignoring the needs around them. Some made very poor personal decisions because they believed somehow because of their status they were above the rules. Uh, Paul, Paul's problem wasn't that rich people existed. It was that they just didn't know how to be rich. They weren't good at it. So here's what he writes to Timothy. And I'm going to shock you in a minute, so hold on. Command those who are rich in this present world, whoever that might be, to be arrogant, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in their zip code or the square footage of their house or the horsepower of their car or the weight of their jewelry or their body measurements. It's a crazy world we live in, folks. He says, don't be arrogant, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Contrary to most Christian belief, God wants you to enjoy life. He created everything to enjoy. He just doesn't want you to worship the provision more than the provider. But He wants you to have fun, enjoy, go golf, get a bass boat, get a big screen TV, get a sports car if God blesses you so that you're able to do it. But don't ever let your heart make that the source of your hope, because if you lose it, now what? Now you have no hope. So He's giving you a caution. He says, instead, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. So Paul starts with an interesting phrase, doesn't he? And almost everybody in church is going to say, that ain't for me. Command those who are rich. So my question is, who's he talking to? Most of you are immediately saying, not me. Got to be somebody got more than I do, somebody wealthier than me, somebody with more resources than I have. But it's interesting in our culture today, the meaning of the word rich is very fluid. It seems to move around based on how much you have or how much you don't think you have. There was actually an article in the New York Times that said the meaning of the word rich uh, changes based on your income. So they did research on this. And a survey was done asking people, how much money would it take for you to be rich? And I'll put it on the screens for you. In households making under $25,000 a year, the average response for what it would take to be rich was $293,000 a year. 
In households earning between $30,000 and $60,000 a year, that number went up to $394,000 a year. In households earning between $60,000 and $120,000 a year, that number went up to $426,000 a year to be rich. And for the top 15%, for those earning over $120,000 a year, that number went up to over $500,000 a year. Now just for a moment, scratch your head and think with me, does anybody see a pattern emerging here? It's like nobody thinks they're rich because being rich simply equals having more. So rich is anybody that has more than I do, no matter how much I have. So reflect on what numbers are really true. Here's another shock. You ready? Buckle up. If your total household income was more than $1,500 a year, you were in the top 25% of wage earners in the world who make a dollar or two dollars a day. If your total household income was more than $25,000 a year, you were in the top 10% of wage earners in the world. If your total household income was more than $50,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. That's a staggering wow. Now what does that mean? Well, this is enlightening. It means, Kimosabi, you're rich. You are rich. But why didn't everybody cry out at Summit, oh, thank God, I came depressed, I came discouraged, and Rick's just told me I'm filthy rich. I'm so excited. Well, I'll tell you why you didn't do that. Because rich people never feel rich. There's a gap between being rich and feeling rich, and rich people never feel rich. You know, my first job in high school was a tire recapping business. And I'll never forget the feeling when I got my first paycheck. It was less than a hundred bucks, but I felt like I had won the lottery. I felt like the richest person in the world. But here's what's so ironic about that. Even though I've been able to make more money than that, I have continually felt less rich. But not because I have less, but because with travel, meeting people, global ministry, I have become aware of so many people who have so much more than I do. So I don't think I'm rich, and you don't either. Which is why Paul says, command those who are rich, and I think he's talking to somebody else, not me. He's going to give it to them, boy, they're going to get it now. Here it comes. They're going to feel so guilty about having all that stuff, having all those resources. There's always somebody that has more than me. So he's got to be talking to them. But the truth is, Paul's talking to me, and Paul's talking to you. Even if you don't think this applies to you, the truth is you can be controlled by money. Your life can be directed and controlled by money even if you don't have a lot of it. Money's actually a lot like sex. It can have power over you whether you have it or not. That was just to wake up some of you, okay? You're with me. You can work that out later. So Paul says to Timothy, command those who are rich not to be arrogant. Now here's what he doesn't say. He does not say you should feel guilty about having money. He doesn't say you should be guilty that you have stuff. 
He doesn't say that money is bad, sinful, or evil. Money has no personality. Money has no nature. It's an, it's an object that takes on the personality, nature, and character of whoever has it. It's neutral. It's not good or bad or indifferent. It's just stuff. It's a tool, basically. He doesn't say you should ever think that money is bad or sinful. He doesn't say don't ever be concerned about your financial life. You should be. He says command those who are rich not to be arrogant because one of the first things having money does or starts to do in people who start to get more of it is you start to believe things about yourself that are not entirely true. You start to believe you're smarter than other people. You start to believe you're more entitled than other people. You start to believe you're better than other people. That your comfort is more important, more valuable than other people's. And the truth is, it ain't so. You know, there are parents in here who because of their hard work and love bought their kids a nice car and they've got a lot of money. Some of you kids are wearing designer clothes and you go to a certain zip code school and you got your nose stuck in the air and you haven't earned a penny. You're spending daddy's money and you got your nose stuck in the air. There are plenty of children in here who are children of a single mom or a parent like that who could be just as good as you and the only difference was if somebody put some money in their pocket, they could put clothes on them and they'd look just as cute, maybe better than you. Some of you inherited a trust. Some of you inherited daddy's business. What am I trying to say? Put your nose down. Get rid of that high horse attitude that you're better than anybody. I've got over 10 million miles in aircraft travel, and I get perks because of that. I can upgrade to first class for points because I've got millions of them. But I never sat up there thinking, I'm worthy of this. I deserve this. I should be treated this way. I'm no better than the guy back next to the engine. I know that. So I carry a completely different attitude. It's called gratitude. Thank God I can sit here. It, it's not a right. It's a privilege. I'm a senior pastor and founder of this church. There are people who look after me and my wife. There are people in security. They, they got me a place to park, but I'm not more special than you. My car rusts. My car runs out of gas. My tires go flat. My battery goes dead. I get a rash. I wear deodorant. I don't glow in the dark. It's a benefit. It's not a right. It's a benefit. So get off your high horse and treat everybody with respect and kindness and carry an attitude of thankfulness to the God who made that possible. I would think we all would agree on that. See, have you ever seen money change your person? Yeah. Interesting. Contemporary research bears out the effect money can have on people whether they want to admit it or not. For example, studies have shown that more money can actually decrease compassion for others. It doesn't increase empathy and compassion, in general we're speaking. It decreases it. Did you know there are people who are paid to study and research playing the game of Monopoly? I didn't know there was a job doing that, but apparently there is. And they studied two students at the beginning of a game, and one was getting 
an unusual amount of wind and amounts of money. He felt kind of guilty and bad and awkward about it, that he had all these extra resources. But what researchers noticed as he continued to play the game, and as the game went on and on, this player became more and more aggressive. He moved his pieces more loudly. He taunted the other player. Now, isn't that interesting that even having more fake money can make you a jerk? (laughs) It's not even real. There's just something about having more. It builds a sense of entitlement in our spirits if we're not careful. There was a study done on pedestrian crosswalks. Think of this. What kind of, in other words, where the cars are supposed to stop, when you step into that crosswalk, that's the law. You stop and let the pedestrian have the right of way. So what kind of cars were less likely to let pedestrians cross the street? Expensive luxury cars or less expensive cars? Anybody want to guess? If you step off the curb in San Antonio, I would suggest you look at the brand and make of that car, because if it's a high-dollar car, he probably ain't stopping. At least he's least like four times, they said, four times less likely to stop. Just a small thing, but why would that be? See, when you don't know how to be rich, money starts to change you. It goes to your head creates that sense of entitlement, that sense that you deserve it, that sense that you're better than other people. I've seen snobby women because they live in a particular zip code and their husband can buy them all the James Avery and Cartier they want. And I thought, you couldn't buy a new bra if it wasn't for that husband who's making all that money. Why are you acting that way? You can drive into neighborhoods and check the culture. I don't think because you're blessed to live in a beautiful home in a gated community, and I wish everybody did, that I have any right right to treat my help or my work or a yard person with disrespect and try to jip them down to the cheapest price possible simply because they don't have much. No, jip out the rich guy. Don't jip the poor man trying to make a living. Yeah. The silence is deafening. So Paul starts out where he should. Command those who are rich, don't be arrogant. Command those who are rich not to be arrogant, secondly, and nor to put their hope in money or wealth. See, the more money we have, the more we're tempted to put our hope in it, to believe it can provide me with what only God can give me, security, contentment, safety, protection, and satisfaction. Idolatry is not worshiping a statue of stone or wood. That's what we think of it. Certainly, that's a form of idolatry, but idolatry in the Bible is anything you put your hope in that only God can provide that it cannot. And God doesn't want you to put your hope in your stuff. He wants you to keep your hope in Him, but enjoy your stuff. Have it. Enjoyment. It was made for your enjoyment. Good. But your hope is never there because you can lose your figure. Watch gravity do its work. You can… Yeah, tomorrow when you get out of the shower, do a little body scan when you get in front of the mirror there. Nobody's looking. Say, yes, taking it. You can nip it and tuck it and silicone it and everything else. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying, it's still taking a toll on you. There are just some things that are inevitable. You can lose a house, a job. You can lose your your career. You could have a long-term career and suddenly be voted out and lose it. Now, where's your hope? Was your hope in that? Is that your identity? See, your self-worth and your net worth are not the same. 
No, my, my self-worth comes from God Almighty who loved me, died for me, and says, you are precious to me. It doesn't come from how much money I have in the bank or what car I drive. I'm just glad to have one. But I'm simply saying, I don't feel better than anybody because if I get a new one or I get one that's a little upgrade or something. I can remember 20 years ago going to Africa on a missions trip, and my trip included a 17-hour journey flight home. And I found myself praying, God, would you just give me a window seat so I can lay over against it and sleep on the way home without anybody bothering me? And the ticket agent called me up and gave me my boarding pass, and it said 21A. That's a window seat. So I got on that flight, and I laid my head against the window, and I was so thankful to God for answered prayer. I was ready to fall asleep when the man next to me tapped me on the shoulder lightly and said, Sir, excuse me, I'm traveling with a friend who's sitting across the aisle. Would you mind trading seats with him? I looked over at the friend, and tears began to well up in my eyes because he was sitting in a middle seat where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know that. You know that. The guy could tell I wasn't too excited about this. He says, hey, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a hundred bucks to switch seats. I mean, the idea that I as a pastor would need to be paid to live out sacrificial generosity that Jesus calls me to live out every single day of my life on my way home from a mission trip to Africa. I could hear God saying, Ricky, you can do the right thing. You can trust me with your comfort for the next 17 hours of your life. So I did what I thought was best. I took the hundred bucks and switched seats. <laughs> I know you wouldn't do that. There's something about money that tends, to, <laughs> that tends to make us believe our lives are going to be safer, more secure, that we're going to be happier and more content. But it never does. The wealth is what Proverbs says, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to climb. That's great language. Because the rich come up with this imagined idea, it's in their head that this money is going to make them safer, more secure, and happier. My life will be secure. My family will be secure. My future will be secure. And what do they do? They work harder, longer hours. Their relationships, their marriages suffer. They make choices at work they shouldn't be making. They stop being generous. They spend and buy and buy. They hoard their resources, which is why we looked last week at research in America on why people who make more on average always give less. And we broke the myth that if I made more, I'd give more, and statistics in America and with the IRS prove it not to be true. In fact, the more money I showed you on the chart, the, it went all the way down to 2.8% for people making in the millions. And the reason wealthier people on average give away a smaller percentage is the more you have, the more you think you need. The more you have, the more you imagine you can finally reach a point where you get an unscalable wall, where you can have a life impervious to anything, sickness, sin, doubt, death. You can build this unscalable wall so that you'll never be tormented by what if, what if. The writer of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, puts it this way, those who love money never have enough. Those who love wealth are never satisfied with their income. So if I'm constantly nagged and I'm not satisfied and I'm depressed because I don't have enough, it's not a sign I don't have enough. It's a sign I put my love somewhere else in money. And I might have a lot. You can love money 
and be poor. You can love money and be rich. Money's not the issue. Trust is the issue. Where's your hope? Simple. So, how much money would you need to secure your future against every imaginable eventuality? That you're safe, you're protected, you're totally secure, Uh, not just you, maybe your family, your children, your grandchildren. How much money would you need? Can I give you what research says is always the answer? Always, always, here's the answer, more than you have. Always. No matter what you have, more than you have. So money isn't the problem. It's what you believe about money that is the problem. It's the way you count on it. It's the way you cling to it. It's the way you attach your hope to it. It's the way it sparks the imagination of what it will provide, the life it will bring you somewhere down the road. And it's the way you start to think, I can build that wall that's unscalable. But you never get there because there is no there, and nobody has ever gotten there. I mean, Solomon was the richest guy in the world in his day and the smartest guy. Some of you hot young men, he had a thousand women. You're not even in the game. A thousand women. I just want to ponder that for a moment. Okay. Silver, gold. He had so much wealth that even the doghouse is like air conditioned, plated in gold. The horse stables were plated in gold. Unimaginable. And he said, you know, it's all vanity. It wasn't wrong. It didn't scratch that itch that only God can fulfill. That's all he's saying. You can love God and have horse stables with gold on them. But the issue is, in general, most people don't. Do you remember you bought your first new car? Maybe it was a used car, but it was new to you. And you'd go to park, go to eat, or go to a movie or somewhere, and you'd park a mile and a half away if, it, if it, no, nobody's next to you. You don't want anybody to ding your car. You were so careful about how much room I got. Six months later, I think I can squeeze it in there, baby. You don't even care. Or you get that house that for you, the first one you own, dream, now it's too small, now it's not good enough. It always wears off. A piece of jewelry wears off. Your new shoes, you walk backwards in the mud so you can see your footprint. You're so proud. Then you don't, then you don't care. That's funny, isn't it? We're all that way. I'm saying no matter what you get, give it a little bit of time, it wears off. No matter how much drugs you pop, then pretty soon it's not enough. I got to get a higher hit. The hit's not enough. No matter how much I drink, it's not enough of a buzz. I need more. I need more. When are we going to get smart to realize that's not how God fixes you? It's not taking anything away. It's shifting your hope to Him instead of the provision. Don't worship the provision. Worship the provider. Only He can make me happy. My wife can't make me happy. My wife can't do that. She's not made to do that. God won't let a woman or a man complete you. God Almighty is the only one that can complete me. And that's a piece of work in itself. And for some of you, it's a big piece of work. I know you. I've been to hospitals, homes with terminally ill people. And I've never heard one of them ever say to me, I wish I'd put more trust and hope in money. No, not one. I wish I'd put more of my life into hoarding, accumulating, storing up. I wish I had bought more, spend more, had more. I never heard that statement once. You know why? Because money can do a lot of good things. It can give you more choices. It can make life more convenient. And none of that is wrong. 
it can open doors for you. It can bring a certain feeling. It can bring a spark of experiences or pleasures or satisfactions that you think are going to last forever. But it's just the provision, not the provider. So it's always limited. Paul says it's uncertain. Think about things that are most important that money can't buy or money can't do. It can't fix a bad marriage that's on the rocks. It can't fix a relationship. It can't change the heart of a loved one or a child that's turned against you. It can't heal you from addiction or loneliness or despair. Can't do it. Some of you make more money than you ever thought you would, and you're not happier. Some of you have more stuff. You're paying interest and uh, uh, insurance on stuff you don't even use, and you're still not happier. You never thought you'd have that. You're anxious, you're still stressed, or you're alone. It's not a sign money is evil. Money is not the problem. It's a sign you put your hope in the wrong place. It's what you believe about your money that's wrong. So Paul says, command those who are rich not to put their hope in money, which is uncertain, unreliable, which comes and goes, which doesn't care, but put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, you're made to be content. You're made to be satisfied. You're made to be lived with joy. You just need to know where the source is. A minute ago, I said money isn't the problem. It's what you believe about your money, but it's also what you believe about God. Regardless of what you tell yourself you believe about God, it's what you actually believe about God that matters. Because for some of you, maybe deep down, you wouldn't want to admit it. You don't think He really cares. Or maybe deep down, and again, you wouldn't want to really admit it. You don't believe He's reliable when it comes to the practical things in life. If you honored Him with your finances, you don't think He'd come through. Maybe deep down, You wouldn't want to admit it publicly. You don't believe He richly provides us with everything we actually need. I'm not saying in our day with the challenges of living and the cost of housing and kids, I'm not saying trusting God is easy or simple, but just because trusting God may feel risky, it doesn't mean there's any other better long-term option for you because there isn't. Let me see if this helps. Here's an illustration. On a scale of zero to ten, how much does your money care about you? Let me tell you how much it cares about. Scale of zero to ten. It doesn't care about you at all. It has no preference for your life. It doesn't care if you're smoking dope. It doesn't care if your wife said, I want a divorce. It doesn't care if you're being foreclosed on. It doesn't care if you have stage four cancer. It doesn't care if it's in your pocket or a thief's pocket. It doesn't care. It will never do anything to care about you. It doesn't even care if it's not in your bank account, but somebody else's. Second thought, on a scale of zero to ten, how much does God care about you? I'd strike a ten in that. And even if you have some doubt, wouldn't you still be better off trusting someone who cares a little than zero? Huh? Wouldn't you be better off trusting somebody who knows your need? Wouldn't you be better off trusting in someone who promises to provide? Wouldn't you be better off trusting in someone who gave his son to die for you? He died for you. Why wouldn't he want to provide for you? Would you not be better off trusting in someone who's not a zero? So Paul's not telling us to choose less security. 
He's telling us to choose more. He's inviting us to choose the security that counts, the kind of security that's eternal, the kind of security that gives satisfaction and contentment and joy at a level of your soul no amount of money can touch. He's inviting you to do the wise financial thing with more security. But here's the thing, and here's where we'll finish. You got to choose. You have to choose. Will I put my trust, my hope in riches? are in the God who richly provides. Now, here's the hard news. You can't choose but one. So we like to think we can choose both all the time. Okay, God, I'll choose you at church. Praise the Lord. I'll choose you at my home group. I'll choose you when I pray. I'll choose you in certain spiritual things. But when it comes down to how I pay my bills, how I plan for the future, how I hold on to my money, or whether or not I act generously in the world, I have a different God than you. You can't choose both, he said. You cannot serve both God and money. So I serve God. He determines my choices, my boundaries, my limits, what I will, what I won't do, my decisions. My money, it's just over here as a tool. I will use it to fulfill whatever His plan or purpose for my life happens to be. I will use it. I will enjoy it. But it will never be my God. It won't be. And it shouldn't be yours. And you can have it as a God and be broke as the Ten Commandments right now. Some of you wouldn't let go of a dollar bill. I don't know about other churches, but we've got people in this church who have been here over 10 years and never given a dime, not to the church, not to a charity, not to the poor, not when we raise money for a homeless church, nothing, nothing. I find that remarkable. You're what we call a leech. You know what a leech is? They suck out of you. They contribute nothing. They just suck off other people. That's sad. The issue is your heart. Out of the heart are the issues of life. Right there. It's always in a heart issue. So here's the good news. Only one of those choices says, I love you, I care for you, and I'll provide for you. Just one. And it ain't my money. So what does that look like to place, to place our trust in God with our money? Command those who are rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is really life. You want to be rich? You want to know how to be rich? You want to know how to be satisfied? How to take hold of this kind of a life? How to be secure in it? You want to know how to, how to build an unscalable wall of security? Not for the next five years or 10 years or 50 years, but a foundation that's eternal. Trust God. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. You're an expression of God. Every time you help somebody, love somebody, give to somebody, every time you're an expression of this God who richly blesses us with benefits daily, makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's, he's a richly generous, outrageous giver. That's what He does. Everything that has life gives, and then it receives, and it just gets bigger. It's just the coolest thing. Um, you know, about a year ago, our home was smashed, windows were smashed, everything we had of value was stolen. I've told you that we, that's happened on two occasions. We had a little Mickey Mouse Kmart security system that didn't work. Joy to the world. Yeah, come home from a beautiful dinner in an evening on date night with my wife and walk into that mess. And so. We get a security company, now I'm going big time. 
I'm going to put cameras in there and going to put motion detectors in there. I'm loading that thing like, a, like the CIA. <laughs> and I want my wife to feel secure. I got a Glock. I feel very secure. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for something. Yeah. And I ain't looking for someone to pray for. I'm looking for somebody to send out into another world is what I'm looking for. But when the, when the man who owns the company came to the door, I came with the checkbook and I said, how much do I owe you? He said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm not allowed to give you a bill. Uh, so-and-so and so-and-so has paid for your security system. And I hugged him and French kissed him. I, uh, yeah. Now here's a rich man who knows how to be rich. Not only do you, you honor the Lord and your church, but all of us have a, you might not be able to do that. I might not be able to do that, but I've been able to do a few things to help different people. That's a beautiful thing about using wealth, using your money when you have a little more than you need to help others on their way. Help someone else's kid, God promises to help your kid. It's just a beautiful thing that works all the time. And I thought, how wonderful that. And then, you know, last week we talked about bringing, I'm using the biblical language, bringing our tithes, giving our offerings. And you weren't here, I'm going to, I was given the privilege to drive around in a Lamborghini, $300,000. I never set my little hot bottom in one before. I know all about them, but I'd never been in one. And so I drove that thing and had a ball driving it. It's amazing how people think you're really something. And I thought, if you folks knew how poor I was, and that this is a borrowed car, you'd spit on me. You wouldn't, you wouldn't give me the time of day. And I finally took it back to the house where it belonged. I did not say to the owner, I am giving you this Lamborghini. I said, I am bringing this Lamborghini back because I didn't own it. I wasn't giving anything. It wasn't mine. I was bringing it. So when we bring our tithes, we're not giving anything. God says that 10% is mine. Bring the tithe. When I give, that's mine. And I give as I feel prompted, led by the Spirit, or have need, not of compulsion, not out of manipulation. That's giving. So it's tithes and offerings. We make, we make bad judgments. I was waiting for a bag at the airport, this beautiful Hispanic lady, long black hair, and I thought, she looks like a movie star, a real hot celebrity, and, and, I, and I thought, I bet this baby is loaded. And she had, this is a couple of years ago, she had a designer purse. Now, I'm not a purse guy, but man, purses can cost thousands of dollars. A purse! Someone you couldn't put a tube of lipstick in or three grand. I think Chanel or some of them. And I, and I just thought, who would have ever believed you'd be paying that much for one? Well, she had one that had just come out, and you could see through it, and it was a hot designer. And I'm thinking, it was summer, I was thinking, man, I like that. I'd like to get one for Cindy, but I think the minimum's around $2,000. So, we were waiting for the bag, and I just said to her, that is the coolest purse I ever saw. And I said, where did you get that? She said, 90 bucks on Highway 90. (laughs) Best fake I ever saw. You see how we misjudge? You don't know if somebody six months past due running from the, the, the repossession. 
Happens all the time. So he's trying to tell us how to act. This might sound impossible, but this is how you experience joy in everyday life and how you find freedom from stress and worry. It may be foreign to you, and for some of you it might be, as we mentioned last week, taking a tithing challenge. I dare you for 90 days to pay 10% of your gross income and give it to God. And if in 90 days He does not supply your need and doesn't come through, then don't even listen to me speak again on that subject and go back to what you were doing before. I also said, if you think we want your money, then give it to another church. And if it works, which it will, then come and give it here. The benefit is to help you. This whole thing, God wants to bless His people, and He set up some principles because when He asks for 10 percent, it's a trust factor. It's not a money factor. 10 percent ain't squat. Some of you think 10 percent, my God, He's going to take my whole life, 10 percent. And yet if a car dealer said, I'll give you 10 percent off that, you say, shoot, that ain't nothing. Some of you wouldn't walk across the street for 10 percent off today, yet God asks you for 10 percent, and you think He's going to take your wife, your kids, and your arm. It's nothing. It's a trust factor. And he says, I'll bless that 90% way more than 100% with a curse on it. He says, trust me. This is the only place in Scripture God says, test me. Everywhere else, don't test. It's a sin to test. But God right here is so desperate for you to learn His generosity. He says, I give you permission. Put me to the test. And boy, people are. And I've been doing this since I was 18 years old. If it was a joke, I'd tell you. But this is something God does for you. And for some of you, it could be helping someone else. But I dare you to take that challenge and do it correctly. Don't cheat. Do it 10% off the top and say, God, this is a real test. And me and the staff and team have been praying God would sweep in and do some pretty supernatural things just to slap you to get to attention, to say, don't doubt me again. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. And people do it in all kinds of ways, and you can do it too. I've never heard any generous person say, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't given that. I wish I hadn't sacrificed that. Because no matter how much or how little you have, the greatest luxury your wealth affords you is not the ability to buy. It's the ability to give. And that's how to be rich. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.